Hello and welcome to the second episode in which Cultural Capital delve into Myth 2019. I am Persephone, the streets breathless, and the sound of Jaguars pairing from underground car parks really awakens me. Um, I'm Andy Hazel. <laughs> I am Petrunia. My name is God. That's not how the, the correct title of the name, uh, the film. Anyway, my name's Anders first. My name's Eloise Ross. I think I've been uh, tweeting the MIF 2018 hashtag oh, a few okay. times this year. Um, I'm sure that is all forgiven. I hope so. If that's the greatest anyway. error that somebody's made this year at MIF, that's doing just fine. I and uh, if you couldn't tell, we're in the middle of MIF. We're slightly <laughs> delirious. We're here with our hot takes on the world of cinema we've had over the previous seven days. Yes, and it's been quite a lot of... It's been packed into those seven days. Anybody else who's experiencing MIF 2019 will probably be feeling um, the, a need for some codril, some uh, some late-night snacks, and a lot of patience because there's been a lot of drama already in, in MIF. The opening night uh, gala went really, really well with the Australian dream. But since then, it's been like a whole new landscape we've had to learn to navigate. There's new chairs to rank in order of comfiness at various cinemas. Um, there's all sorts Indeed. of stuff to deal with, but maybe first we should take a look at The Nightingale, which is a film all three of us have seen. Get me to the soldiers that came by this morning. It's too dangerous. Up north, they kill us. You sure you want to follow him? Every tear amen. The Nightingale was a dual award winner at the 2018 Venice Film Festival, a follow-up by Jennifer Kent to her film The Babadook, which pulls no punches in its brutal depiction of life in colonial Tasmania, especially for women and Indigenous Australians. This is from the MIF program guide. Now, I feel like that I should clarify that Andy and I saw it before MIF, just so no one pulls us up on the fact that this is not a MIF experience. Um, <laughs> but Anders, you did see it at MIF. I did in classic MIF venue, the plenary. Yes. Uh, a, so, and it was a grueling film. I'm still actually really ambivalent about it, and, and I'm tr- in the sense that I really do not know how to to think about it, except to say it was like quite viscerally gruesome. Like it really is a horrific film to watch. Yeah, it really is. I feel like it was, I don't know if I'm going to express this properly, but there are some films that are particularly violent and maybe particularly violent towards women um, in a way that affects me quite horrifically. And they seem to do so in a way from which I cannot recover like within the bounds of the film experience right yeah whereas this film was so 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 awful in so many ways of of the things that it depicted a lot of those things came within the first half hour but of course you know it was they, they were not over with by that point but i do feel like they were dealt with in this quite responsible way both narratively and also in the kind of content we got cinematically because i felt as though i was able to kind of move through this pain that was being depicted while I was watching the film and kind of emerged okay and not traumatised beyond the film. I don't know if that totally makes sense. But there was something about the way that Kent and the editor and the sound designer kind of put all these things together that just made the scenes work really, really well in the context of what they were trying to do. 
I'm trying to like being very, I guess, vague because I don't want to give stuff away necessarily or describe yeah, things overly yeah. unnecessarily. I did have a nightmare the night after we, the night that we saw it, Andy. Really? And I slept quite, quite badly. But I, th- I don't blame the film for that. I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't blame the film for its brutality, whereas sometimes I will. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I was. It did make me think. Like, why is this more disturbing and more harrowing? than other similar events that I've seen that are equally horrific in nature. And, I'm, yeah, you're right. I'm trying to work out how it is that Kent has done this. And maybe it's to do with honouring the story and the narrative of the character rather than using it as a narrative device, but in which in the hands of a different director maybe it would be done. Mm. Like, you know, if you think of Straw Dogs or Sala or something like that where these sure. sorts of events happen and they're, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah and just like, handling look, is very look different. Look how cinematic these things can be. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's and very how much realistic. That way. Yeah, this film surprised me quite a lot. I don't really know what I was expecting apart from coming to it with its reputation kind of known to me, which was that yeah. people abused it for being overly, you know, brutal for depicting certain things, you know, so-called gratuitously, which is a description yeah. I really disagree with mm. in a lot of cases, and specifically in the Nightingale. Um, and so I didn't really know what to expect. It was a lot kinder and than I expected it to be, I suppose. Mm, like it was very mm-hmm. funny in moments. Yeah. And the relationship between the two main characters, Claire and Billy, was really quite sweet, I thought. You know, in between its horrible events that it was depicting, this kind of became like a buddy comedy, <laughs> I thought. Yeah, there were moments of that, I thought. Yeah. I'm intrigued as to ambivalence, Anders. Well... <sighs> <laughs> well, I, I can't even really articulate it. I guess, what, uh, look, one um, criticism I've heard from other people, which I would be interested in your opinions on, is is Billy's character, does he become totally, in the end, subsumed by Claire's journey and Claire's story? So, look, to, to give people a bit of context here, um, these horrific events happen to Claire uh, the main uh, this woman who um, is originally Irish, she's been sort of banished to Tasmania for petty crimes of some description. These horrific events happen to her at the hands of uh, this guy Hawkins, played by Sam Claflin. He sh- and then she basically, with the help of Billy, who is an Indigenous tracker, they sort of track down Hawkins and his sort of band um, of British soldiers on the way to Launceston. So she can enact her revenge, I guess. Claire is very much from her context. She's outright racist in her interactions with Billy. Um, There is definitely an intersectional consciousness going on here. But I do wonder if Kent abandons that in the service of this buddy narrative that becomes stronger as the film goes through. I don't necessarily have a strong opinion on that but it is something that perhaps troubled me particularly with how the narrative resolves itself Mm, okay yeah a lot of people have gotten have taken similar yeah i mean a tool to her wokeness i think is a way that somebody described it on twitter is is billy a tool to her wokeness well oh yeah there was a review in um i believe it was film Film comment comment that's Argued that, yeah, he was a Sherpa up mountain with wokeness or That's something. That's right, yes. I hate that so much. Like, not just, uh, of course, the, the sentiment, the intent behind that kind of criticism of the film is, is fair to some extent. But, I don't know, just something about 
the the snappiness of that line makes me think is this a disingenuous criticism and mm. is this person just using sure. the word i mean nothing about this makes me think oh my god is jennifer kent trying to be woke like nothing at all and and yes there is maybe a point at which billy kind of becomes a character who is only there to exist so that claire's narrative can progress however i don't really agree in the context of films that have two characters of this kind together i think it i don't know and then like am i only forgiving it because it's better than other ones i've seen that that have this kind of imbalance character imbalance and the way that those characters are treated kind of in profile but i'm i feel like he's a fairly well-rounded character and he could be more Mm. well-rounded that's true yeah i think he's handled um, quite well by Kent. I think there's a, there is a certain depth to him that you probably wouldn't get from other people. I also just trust her implicitly. I think everything else in this movie means that if I saw it again, I would be like, yeah, uh, yeah I, I have no problems with this at all. I don't think there is a Mount Wokeness. I don't think there is a particular <laughs> did they, narrative that she is following to become. I, I mean, why did this person say the Mountain of Wokeness? Is it because, you know, she it's was great being it's nice about a, a black character i we can't talk about it without spoiling it and i don't want to spoil it well he's he, this is a genuine question again um not not a criticism necessarily but i would be curious of why do we need to see all of this it's true yeah I, yeah i think I it's interesting know. the way it's, they it's they both handle trauma differently it's yeah it's part of the roundedness of these characters that i think makes this story really compelling i was really impressed by this film and i wanted to see it again immediately uh, maybe not that same day, but very very soon. I'm going to go and buy a ticket on opening weekend. Cool. Because it's yes. Australian and we should support the Australian film industry. And you won't have seen anything like it. You won't have seen... No. Yeah, I can guarantee that. And I cannot, I think, overstate the the violence. I mean, it's not it's not continually violent, but there are some horrific... Were there walkouts in your screening? Moments. There were, yes. yes. Yeah, and were there was a big communal response to certain moments of violence. Really? Of we didn't yeah. have any in ours. We had two there walkouts. Were two walkouts. They got the called same wusses couple. by the same... Did by, they? On the way out, yeah. Someone called them wusses. The person sitting next to me did, yeah, <gasps> as I walked oh, past Oh, goodness us. me. I mean, um, why would you say that? I mean, excuse me, That's <laughs> I'm actually... Are very annoyed that an audience member would judge people for doing that. I think that's you're totally within your right to do that. Sure, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a difficult watch, no question. Okay, so the Nightingale, Jennifer Kent's Nightingale, is showing one more time at MIF. It is showing on the fourteenth of August, nine p.m. at the Astor, and it gets a general release at the end of the month. <laughs> Kleber Mandoncha Filho and Juliano Dornelles uh, collaborate on Bacurau, which is the first film that uh, Filho's made um, after Aquarius, which we all saw and loved a couple of years ago. It was one of our films of that year, I think. Yes, it was. Um, this is a really interesting, sort of unique film. Um, it starts off in a sort of 
neo-realist mode. Um, we're in a small town, the titular town of Bacurau, in um, uh, somewhere in the middle of Brazil. Um, we're somewhere in the near future, the film tells us. Uh, and we get to know really the inhabitants of this small town, this community. There's, you know, the doctor, um, the teachers. There's like the... Um, the sort of woman who sort of left and returned. There's the sort of whole host of different characters. Anyway, it starts out sort of we get to know this town and these characters and then about halfway through a, according to the Myth Program Guide, a sinister army of foreigners with the great Udo Kia um, sort of leading them descends upon, the, well, the great actor, I should say. Uh, this um, his character, though, is something else. So uh, yeah, these foreign, this army of foreigners descend on the town and start basically hunting them, and it turns into this super interesting western film, bit of violence, a weird little bits of kitschy sci-fi thrown in for good measure. Eloise, what did you make of this? It's funny that that's the description. Because I feel like, and I could be misremembering, this film is like two hours and ten minutes, I think. It is about that. And I feel like that, you know, the foreigners descending on the town doesn't really happen until kind of quite a bit over halfway through. Um, I mean, it's sort of, there is a moment at which this the, the tone and the narrative focus shifts in this film, which is not unusual. I mean, Aquarius, that kind of happened as well. Yeah. Um, right? And I'm not familiar with the other collaborator of Phil Ho, but I have seen Aquarius and Neighbouring Sounds, which was his first feature film. I think he's um, Phil Ho's long-term, like, cinematographer. And, Ooh, yeah, okay. he's migrated up to co-director on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was quite different from those two films, I thought, in that it was... I don't know, it was kind of more schlocky in towards the very end, um, which I really, really quite loved. I remember thinking... At about that point, I think maybe just before it shifted, oh, this is not, this is probably going to be my least favourite of his three features. And then it shifts into this completely, you know, somewhat over the top, wild, semi B movie that I think has turned a few people off. But with me, it completely got me back mm-hmm. on board again. And I was com- like so thrilled and so high from the experience by the end of it. You know, I think it's quite similar to a lot of to his other films in terms of its composition. Um, it's very beautiful. It's very slow in some ways and kind of really cautiously put together. And it makes you really, really care about a whole range of characters with through fragments, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it quite fascinating how he manages to do that. Mm. You know, in Neighbouring Sounds, he essentially gets us to care a great deal about about six different families or something without us really knowing all that much about them apart from how they look at their neighbor um Mm, it's a really kind of powerful trait yeah there is a real certain playfulness with genre here that i really love like there's no way i think you can say that this film takes itself seriously even though it might be you might be able to apply all sorts of modern and political you know, stories to it and narratives that are relevant to people mm. in Brazil, you know, with the crazy changing po- politics and attitude yes. towards the environment, all this sort of stuff you can place put on this film if you want to, or mm. it can just be this funny trip through westerns and sci-fis and action. I mean, is that, I mean, there is no doubting that Phil Ho makes films about the current and historical political scenario in Brazil. 
because he's publicly it's you know been publicly declared. Yeah. yeah. Um. In, in like when so Aquarius many, was at Cannes, there yeah. was a protest. <laughs> they all protested. Yes, for mm. sure. And and the country refused to nominate yeah. it for an Oscar. Yeah. Um. I mean, so there's no doubting that whatsoever. And I wonder whether this is his kind of, you know, finger to the yeah. government where he says, well, because there are like you can completely read into the you know, the political narrative of this film and kind of see how it's trying to place Brazil's politics against the rest of the world and what it's trying to say about America, about America's flaws, about um, dictatorships, about Nazis, (laughs) you know. Yeah. But also maybe he just completely indulges in, you're right, Andy, like this spread of genre. Yeah, and also if you know nothing about this and care nothing about it, you're not going to it's not going to make any difference at all. It's mm. still a really fun, really well-made film. Although there is, I mean it clearly does have a political point of view. I mean mm. the and in you know the I mean there's from the corrupt uh, local politician and it upwards it's almost like this angry cry against like Bolsonaro and um, Trumpian kind of politics. Like Bolsonaro's coming after him. Like I think oh, really? they're trying to get filmmakers who have received state subsidies to pay back the money they were they were given. Um, I read this. Yes, I'd forgotten I all mean, about it. It's almost as if Screen Australia were to say, you know, give mm. us all the money we invested in Palm Beach. I mean, it's like... You know, I wouldn't be against, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I would be. That would be horrendous. So, okay, so I'm sorry. I've just... There's an IndieWire story that says, two weeks before Cannes, the Brazilian government announced a 30-day ultimatum for Philho to return roughly $500,000 that it provided for neighbouring sounds. So, there you go. So, yeah, uh, anyway, that's all by the by. I've... Although not really, it's actually integrally <laughs> related with this film. I Yeah, I just really love this film. I, he gets such great performances from... Uh, his actors to a couple of which in this film are uh, sort of regulars now. Sonia Braga? Yeah, she's so good. She just has to so look. So good. Yeah, she was great actually as this alcoholic doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like this film a lot. Mm, same, yeah. Yeah, when I when I was watching it before it kind of, you know, shifted gears, I thought maybe this is not one that I want to necessarily mm-hmm. watch again, but boy, do I now. <laughs> <laughs> Would you go as far as to say it's your favourite of myth so far? I think it might be my favourite that I've seen so far. I was just on such a high when I left. And it possibly combined with In Fabric that I saw right beforehand, that double, I think, just gave me a high. But I was – this Baccarat was probably my most anticipated of the whole fest and I think it has not disappointed. Great. Okay. So, yeah, totally a highlight and one to add to my, you know – my faves. Well, listeners, you can see it on August 14th at 6pm at the Astor if you t- want to take um, Ello's word for it. Uh, Anders, do you have a favourite film of Myth so far? I do indeed. And uh, I wasn't expecting this at all, but I have to say my favourite film is Matthias and Maxime. Uh, really? The Xavier Dolan film. Oh my yes. God, always the left field calls with I, you. I'm not I, surprised. I or maybe I surprised. am. Well, I, I feel like you were just so pumped for it. Yeah, I really was. And, <laughs> and it... It, it kind of exceeded my bizarrely That's already so inflated. <laughs> I'm, look, I really did dislike his last film, but this makes me want to revisit what it. What was his last one? Um, oh, it's the only The End of the World. It's not The End of the uh, World or whatever that was. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. It's so forgettable. 
Yeah, yeah, I've already, I have already forgotten it. Anyway, but I've, I've, I haven't forgotten Matisse Maxime and I kind of want to see it again. It's a really expira- interesting exploration of many things, perhaps best summarised under the umbrella of late 20-something life. So what I really... So basically, um, it follows two young men who are sort of late 20s, early 30s, and they're part of this sort of group of bros in Montreal who have all been friends for, like, decades at this point. They have in-jokes that... They sort of tell each other. They all, you know, have a very comfortable connections with each other. Dolan plays this main guy who is sort of the film very artfully suggests mo- most mostly gay. Although this is this is one of the great things about this film, I think, is that it does none of the yeah these characters have very interesting relationships with their sexualities anyway he's um mostly gay and he and his mostly straight sort of best friend from amongst this group of people uh or his best friend who he has who has a girlfriend they kiss for this short film that's being made and they didn't realize they had to do it they sort of get thrust into that moment and then the film sort of follows what happens afterwards crucially the film never really never shows us that kiss but what I just find really interesting about it is it's such an interesting portrait of, you know, a group of people who, you know, what happens when people begin to change their identities and they're in this kind of close-knit environment where, you know, perhaps um, people have set pictures of who you are. What happens when that begins to shift? Why do they, you know, they're different? They're changing, shifting grains of their relationships, their relationships with their mothers in classic Xavier Dolan form. There's a lot of great older women acting in this film. Yeah, it's it's just really tender and emotional. He gives a wonderfully vulnerable performance too, as this guy who's kind of in love with his best friend, but also, yeah, he's a bit emotionally fragile. He's about to run away to Australia, actually, to become a bartender in Melbourne. Uh, <laughs> so, so that was a fun little layer there. Is that because he knows about his fans in Does Melbourne? He, yeah. Is it because of you, Anders? Yeah. With, yeah Is I, that why? I would happily welcome you, Xavier Dolan, <laughs> into my life. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just really complex. It's confidently made. Harris Dickinson pops up. And he's like this tall drink of water. He's so attractive. <laughs> in, uh, he's like the Toronto, you know, um, Wall Street bro. The Wall Street bro in Wall Street's New York. You know what I mean. Uh, finance bro from Toronto who like flies in. And yeah, I just found it really, really emotionally real. And the moment when... Well, I won't spoil that. Anyway, there's a really great moment <laughs> that is just beautifully uh, presented in slow motion. He's really good at slow motion. I've only seen Mommy and yeah. I've liked it a lot. Yeah. But same. I've just never been super fussed about Dolan. Do you reckon I should get yeah. back into it with this one? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't think it's as good as Mummy. I think Mummy is particularly good. I'm, I would love to rewatch it, but it is up there. It's there's something so vulnerable about his performance too. Like really emotionally vulnerable. He puts it all out there and you can sort of tell he's clearly trying to process something. And that is really interesting. It it feels like it feels really like a personal, very personal film. Yeah, I left thinking, is Xavier Dolan happy? Really? Question and what did I think, and you don't know? You don't. No, I'm you can't not sure. Tell. I'm not sure. Okay. I would love to keep talking about this because the ending is another thing, but I might as well. But yeah, um, 
yeah, I really, really dug it. I could, I really want to see it again, but unfortunately it's playing at the same time as something else. It's on Monday, isn't it? Monday, the 12th of August, 9pm at the Astor. Yeah. Yeah, great film. And he uses pop music again cleverly. And there's a Titanic homage. Oh, God, this is one of the few things I know about this film. Is the hand on the window or the something. hand, yes. Or um, there's some... He yes. seems to have a great affection for that film. Yeah, he does. He loves Leo DiCaprio and that film and all that stuff. Um, yeah, and that moment I is just beautiful. I love that moment. Great. Yeah. Well, I've got to say my, my favourite film of the festival so far is what I was expecting it to be, which is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, I cannot wait to see this, Andy Hazel. Oh, my God. Neither. Yes. Well, I was trying to get, it in, get to see it at Cannes. Everybody was losing their minds about it. They were all convinced it was going to win the Palm Door and were only a bit annoyed when it was just one screenplay. Um, so Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a film – well, it did win the Queer Palm. It won the Queer Palm. And the best screenplay, yes. Um, uh, it's about Nomi Merlin. She plays a Marianne, who's a young painter in 18th century Nomi France. Merlin. Oh, sorry. I've been watching too much Showgirls. I thought you said Nomi Oh, Nomi. Oh, no. But also that's <laughs> another film know. entirely. Which <laughs> totally, totally. You don't know me. Yes. Sorry for the distraction there, listeners. Um, yeah, Nomi Merlin plays Marianne, who's a young painter in 18th century France, who's commissioned to paint the wedding portrait of Eloise. <gasps> me. Yeah, only with an H at the beginning. Oh, yeah, that's very French and fancy. Eloise is played by Adele Hanel. Oh, I love her. Yes. I didn't even know she's in this. Phenomenal. But they're both amazing in this film. They're she, both like jaw-dropping. She's one of my favourite French actors. Oh, good yeah. Lord. But okay, yes, right. you, he needs to see this even more now. Uh, yep. um, and she, uh, sorry, Eloise is a pretty reluctant. She doesn't really want to be sold off. She does, doesn't have, uh, their family does not have a good history in, with regard to this. And so she refuses to sit for the portrait. And so her mother asks uh, Marianne to follow her around and observe her and paint the portrait from memory. And so this becomes this whole – and so the camera starts analysing the body and the face and the gestures of this very inscrutable woman and eventually a friendship develops and they start opening up to each other and that escalates on this very strange remote More island. friendship? Mm, maybe, yeah. Maybe. Well, if anybody who knows me knows that my favourite film of all time is Brief Encounter, which is very romantic, and my favourite film of this decade is Your Name, also an extremely romantic film, then they're going to understand how I <laughs> totally fell for this film because it's just – it's just, oh, God, it's just full of empathy. It's beautifully shot. It's the most amazing dialogue. As if it's written by a screwball comedy writer sometimes. Even though it's not laugh out loud funny, there is just so much so much layered detail. Oh, yeah, it's it's stunning. So, yeah, that really, really impressed me, and I, my expectations were already set pretty high. Now, I'm, uh, I, I, I was originally expecting melodrama, but I'm led to believe it's not like that at all, and there may even be some sort of tension to the film. There is. There is a lot, actually. Okay. It, and it builds beautifully, very subtly. Because yeah. it's, it's not a particularly fast-moving film. It's modestly budgeted. It's um, beautiful to look at, but also it's not like full of sweeping grandeur or anything like that, even though there are cliffs aplenty and crashing waves and a gorgeous mansion mm. in an isolated place. And there's the, as you were saying, I think, well, I, we last talked about it on the podcast, the idea of having a painting as like a narrative point is really, totally. really, really interesting. It. Yeah, You'll catch me at the Goldfinch too. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, why not go and watch Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca before the inevitable remake? Yes. Because um, that's all about amazing paintings too. I can't, I can't wait, Andy. I'm really excited. I've been, I have it on good authority from multiple sources that the final shot is Shh, Don't talk lovely. about it. I'm lovely. I'm not going to confirm lovely. or deny. It's, 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 it's memorable. It is what it is. Yeah, okay. it's memorable. And if listeners are intrigued, you can <laughs> see it on Sunday the 18th at 4pm at Hoyt's. 
in cinema 10 or 11. What about this Saturday? This is there. when I'm seeing it. Saturday 10th of August as well, 6.30 okay. p.m. at yeah. Quetz. Probably yeah, I'll be there. Right? But that's on standby, yes. On standby. Well, lucky us, Anders. Yeah, great. Yeah, get amongst it, listeners. You may not get another chance. I don't know if it's going to get a release or not. I hope so. I imagine it's too good not to, but also I just don't know. Um, but uh, do we want to talk about disappointments or surprises? Um, memorable um, misfires? I, I Look, what's been a disappointment? The thing is I temper my expectations for the disappointment so they actually meet my expectations. Um, maybe Hotel by the River. Oh, good was, things about that. I mean, it was fine. It fine, was just, yeah. But I mean, aren't they all they, just fine? Yeah, they're sort of varying degrees of fine. <laughs> I did some say to someone good. that I was not going because like they're all the same. Uh, you know, I mean, part of them, yeah. some of them have better moments than others. Yeah. But... Essentially, I feel I don't feel a need to go every year. Yeah, <laughs> that's sure, my opinion. Sure, we're talking about the Hong Sang Soo film, uh, yeah. just FYI, and he had three films in last year's myth. <laughs> just to give you an idea of how prolific he is. Um, look, it was fine, but it did. It had a couple of really nice scenes with some sort of wisdom imparted, and I watched them and I went, you know what, this is great. This is a great sort of you know life advice I'm getting from you from mm-hmm. the film, and so it was worth it for that. But on the whole, yeah, yeah, okay. So that's my this one. I haven't seen anything bad. They've all been yeah. average or good, or quite good. Sure. Ello, do you have a disappointment of myth so far <coughs> besides Smoker? <laughs> I. I don't know if I would classify this as a disappointment necessarily, but I saw, I believe it was Macedonian Um, called God Exists, Her Name is Petrunia. And I was really excited about it because the title, I don't know, excited me. And also the image in the myth guide is of a woman standing in a drained lap pool. Sounds cool. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. And it... Was not. It kind of, like, it started with one kind of focus on this woman and essentially it set this up as a character study of a woman, 32-year-old, you know, not conventionally attractive and she's kind of moping over the fact that her mother um, puts her down all the time and that she can't um, achieve things that other people her age do and she doesn't have a job, et cetera, et cetera. And that takes up maybe 20 minutes of something. And then it shifts and it kind of – it's still – it focuses on her very much but something – so I don't know much about this ritual. I don't know. But every – the myth guide says every January during Epiphany celebrations, the men of Stipp dive into the river angling to retrieve a submerged crucifix and earn a year of good luck. Now, I think I knew about that tradition somehow but she dives and gets the crucifix and then she steals it and – there's this kind of like very blatant setup of, and of you, you know the patriarchy kind of like not allowing women to get to enter. Yes, um, right. and there are some like lines that are just a bit too on the nose, and it's trying to do like five or six things all at once. And essentially, the the main character is really quite interesting, and I liked her a lot. But but overall, it was pretty messy, and and I was bored quite quickly. So you would say that. The filmic God exists, but her name is not God exists. Her name is Petrunia. Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. Glad we clarified that. Yes. Um, I would probably have to say, despite quite enjoying it, um, the day shall come 
was possibly my disappointment so far, just because I tell myself Chris Morris is a genius. Chris Morris is a genius. Oh, and yes. I have been telling myself that for about 20 years. I've and heard this about the film. It's intriguing. Yeah. Mm. It's just very brave, but it also has been nine years since Four Lions, and I'm not sure what he's been doing since then. But he's working with Jesse Armstrong, and when you throw the things he's been working on, like you know, Peep Show and... Uh, the thick of it and succession, you're like, oh, this is all very interesting because, you know, Chris Morris did Brass Eye as well. Mm. He did the day-to-day. He's like, he pretty much redefined British comedy mm. back in the late Nathan 1990s. Barley, which I've been watching on YouTube. Which, sorry? Nathan Barley. Yes, perfect example. So good. Blue Jam. Yeah. yeah all yeah, this sort yeah. of fa- fantastic stuff. But also it was quite a long time ago and he seems to have made this quite well-written but also very weirdly ambitious kind of part black comedy. And so there's a lot of anger in it. There's a lot of um, – it's, it's just difficult to really empathise with the characters and to really get on board with it, even though I quite liked it and I always respect him. I'll definitely see whatever he wants to do next because he's a very, very interesting person. But this quite didn't quite land with me as I was hoping it would. Um, before we finish, can I just return to something a little more positive sure. than my um, disappointment? Yes. So I wanted to just – I don't know. I have no idea how to talk about this film, essentially. But I saw The Trial oh, yes. the other day, the Sergei Loznitsa film. And I'm going to read the Myth Guide text. But essentially, I don't know how much of this... I feel like this is all PR material. And maybe I was talking to my friend Paul just now, just before we recorded. And there's a couple of reviews out there, but it's essentially a fake a film about a fake trial. So it's a, it doesn't, it's, it's about a fake trial and maybe it's a fake film as well. There are all of these layers at which you don't know kind of where it begins and where it ends essentially. And there are only a few reviews online and they all kind of spit out the same information. <laughs> and it's like, are people just, is Loznitsa playing this huge trick on everybody I essentially don't really know, but I found it fascinating. So the trial is composed exclusively from real courtroom footage shot in 1930, a film that takes place in Moscow where a Stalin-orchestrated plot sees a group of top-ranked economists and engineers accused of planning a coup d'etat. The suspects are questioned in a packed courtroom where charges are fabricated and the punishment, if convicted, is death. The story is that he found a bunch of footage about this show trial that took place in 1930 that was released at the time in this 45-minute propaganda film. Stalin then used this footage where these people were admitting to these false acts of treason to persecute them. I don't know. Anyway, it's like very confusing and kind of wild and like very fascinating considering what we know of 1930 the 1930s like in stalinist russia and also now Mm. today and i'm really really fascinated to know more about this and watch it and it was it was very dry as a film there were moments of humor because you think these people are reading lines and the stuff that they have to say is extraordinarily absurd to kind of try and exonerate themselves but then also admit to being guilty so they can at some point like you know be kind to the state I guess. <laughs> so it's quite funny at the yeah. same time as being almost too dry. So let me get this straight. He's made a, a new film which is the idea is it's a fictionalised story about a trial which is made up of real propaganda footage of trials. Is this the idea? I think it's all footage of one show of, trial. Of one show trial. All assembled. Okay, okay. To 
but it's not. He's he's obviously changed the that footage around. It's, it's not just rerunning. Like he's obviously edited that into something. Well, it looks like it's rerunning the footage, which is what makes oh, it so fascinating. Like okay. a- about you know where the line is and where the curtain is. Interesting. In this. Mm. It sounds a bit Kiristami-ish, a bit like close up. Or something yeah. Like that, where it's at one point he yeah. Yeah, he pulls the curtain, but you don't know yeah. where that where <laughs> exactly. that line is. It only confuses things more. Um, it's I am so enthralled by this, this sounds fascinating, project. Yeah. But he's done all sorts of fascinating stuff, Loznitsa, and yeah, I'm just really very I, I enjoyed it a lot. And it's screening one more time on Tuesday night, the thirteenth at nine PM. Great. And which is when I'm seeing Long Day's Journey into Night. Which That's is finally. Conven- conveniently sold out. So if you can't see that, then maybe you should go. Hang on, this is not your most wanted film of to see film of 2019, as said <coughs> in the last episode of 2018 I on Cultural Capital. I, s- I think I said that then. Oh. Yes. Yeah, I remember um, that very clearly. Which okay. is why I'm so happy I got a ticket. It was I'm sold glad out you did for too. a while there. Yeah. Cool. Um, and Anders and I both saw Brittany runs a marathon, which we was did. quite nice and very different to the trial in that it's a quite straightforward tale of a woman overcoming a lot of difficulties to run the New York Marathon. Great. Not a spoiler in the title. It is literally in the title. Yeah, sure. she does run a marathon. Yeah. Um, I thought it was like completely fine. Uh, doing some <laughs> I was doing some interesting things. Come on, we both wept. I Yeah, I did cry. <laughs> I cried. But uh, as I said on oh God, on my Letterboxd review, um, they're just masters at emotional manipulation. Those American indie filmmakers, like I was all like that. Mm. <laughs> They really lay it on, and it, look, it affected. I was, I bought it. I yeah, bought it the cinema was audibly, yeah, yeah, <laughs> emotionally was, moved by yeah, it. Yeah, by it was film. quite nice. But also, nice. yeah, I mean, it's funny it's if it wasn't, if that wasn't the title, if it was just called like I don't know, streets or something, alluding to New York streets, then like, would it have been that emotional? Because you're already prepped mm. to be like, is Britney gonna get is she there? Gonna run is she gonna the do it? Damn marathon. <laughs> Britney runs like I'm feeling. I'm feeling energized for her movement. You know, it literally like I get. Maybe that's a marker of of the film's accomplishment is that it's called Britney runs a marathon. She literally runs a marathon. You know she's going to do it, and yet you're still bawling. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, yeah, and Gillian Bell's a great presence. Oh, on she screen. was fantastic. She, yeah, she was physically great. transformative. Yeah, she yeah, literally. Yeah, that was uh, that was really good. Yeah. So, interesting film. Um, I just want to do a brief shout-out to... It's it's not in my notes because I've just come from it. The Lodge. So, this was a great uh, little horror film that's been on my to-watch list for a, for a while. You've probably heard me rabbit on about it before. Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. I really like how they... I mean, A, they seem to hate kids... And B, they make really sort of psychologically grounded horror. That's what I love about it. Like it's really, it's the same with Good Good Night Mummy. It's really, uh, it's quiet, it's unsettling and it's grounded in, I mean, trauma in a way in this film. It's very interesting. So I like that. I'm seeing it on Thursday. Thanks for putting it on my radar. And as No first. worries. Hope you, hope you enjoy it. Eloise Lowross. <laughs> Andy, what are you excited to see? Oh, uh, coming well, up. Um, there's a whole bunch of things. I've missed seeing Give Me Liberty because of my. Um, that looks <coughs> fucking awesome, and I can't go. What? Why? Uh, I was a clashes with something. Okay. I forget. No, what, I, 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 I. This film got went on my radar at Cannes, mm. where I was sitting in, on a panel of indie American filmmakers, and the director of that film was there, and he was just so funny and so charismatic, and I was like, I really want to see your movie, and it had already finished playing. So and I've heard of nothing but the good things about that since mm. it's been uh, since it's arrived at MIF. So that's probably the film I'm most excited about. Also very keen for the farewell, but who isn't? Um, and also the Wild Goose Lake had technical difficulties at its last screening, and so I'm still looking forward to seeing that. 
<laughs> cool. Because I, I'm black hole thin ice. But I yeah, I mean, maybe it will be on SBS On Demand though, right? Because isn't black hole thin ice or it used to be? Good point. Probably will be. Something. I've heard good things about that too, yes. I want to... Mm. Uh, Make my way to Ghost Town Anthology, the <gasps> Denny Cotter film. I People heard that raving was about great. it. Did yeah. you see it? No. no, no, but I want to squeeze it in because yeah. he's uh, he's a filmmaker I only ever watch or think about at Myth, but um, I really like his stuff. So yeah, cool. Okay, sixteen mil, I think. Um, horror, horror, sort of ghost yes. film. Oh, yeah, it's actually scary. Yeah. I've heard. Yeah. So actually scary. Mm-hmm. You heard it here. Um, well, we will be back in just a few days' time, listeners, with um, a special. Uh, episode of cultural capital which in which we joined the myths critic campus um so you'll be able to hear not only um us talking but also the whole new generation of australian film criticism live into your ears so please do stay with us and that that's that should be coming to you this coming weekend 10th and or 11th of august uh should we upload it on both days just the hoyt's 10 or 11 hoyt's 10 or 11 (laughs) (laughs) um yes the streets breathless i am persephone 